Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent. Jim Colangelo with uh, State of Michigan. Thanks for joining today. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your role with the State of Michigan? Uh, sure, thanks. I'm uh, Jim Colangelo. I am the Chief Procurement Officer for the State of Michigan. I have uh, been in this role for four years now. Um, actually, on January 2nd was my four-year anniversary. So um, I am essentially responsible for um, a large portion of our state procurement activities. We are more or less uh, centralized, at least from a uh, policy procedure uh, perspective. Um, we have, you know, ultimate uh, procurement authority over uh, all of our state agencies in one form or another, uh, with the exception of a couple that have some statutory authority for uh, certain things like roads um, and uh, over at the Department of Transportation and similar things like that. So, yeah, Good. that's uh, that's me. Good. Well, so, um, you know, uh, Michigan was recognized by um, governing in 2019 um, as one of the top five programs. I don't remember the exact number, but, um, and then I've actually referenced certain things in, in your program, um, different times, like the contract management and, um, and some other pieces. So um, uh, what are the, some of the things that you're most proud of that Michigan's been doing that would, that were honored in that way? And what are some of the lessons that others can apply, whether they're states or other levels of government? Um, a couple of things off the top of my head would be our ability to um, track metrics um, and not just cost savings, but, um, you know, in pretty much every way you can imagine, we, we track about 40 different uh, key performance indicators uh, across our department. Um, a lot of that is around our sourcing team and their lead times for all the different types of solicitations that we do, not just RFPs, but um, you know, every change notices and you know, from the big stuff to the small stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And while we don't link our individuals' uh, performance reviews and, and such to those key performance indicators, everyone is measured on them. Um, mm -hmm. And that trickles up. So from an individual level, up to a department level. So we have, say, our IT sourcing team, our commodities or services. Um, those are our three main kind of sourcing categories. Um, they're all measured at their kind of group level, but also down to their individual level. So they have some responsibility there. Um, but with that, you know, responsibility and measuring of those numbers came the ability to execute on projects without a lot of oversight, meaning we gave our sourcing folks uh, what we call signature authority, which basically means they can execute contracts up to a certain level without going through multiple tiers of approvals. Um, so that decreased our sourcing time overall quite a bit um, and you know, helped our metrics and move our numbers up. Uh, for the, for the entire group, but also helped our culture along quite a bit in terms of people feeling 
that they owned and were responsible for their projects. Um, and the quality of the work increased significantly at that point. So a couple of things tied in here, just a quick recap. So we started measuring our data um, and said, look, you're gonna be measured on this data, everyone. Um, but also here's how you can control that. And here's the responsibility for those things. So at first, you know, there was a lot of concern among staff, like, hey, you're measuring me on something that I may not have full control over. Um, you know, it's not always my fault that a project takes a long time. And we understand that we have, you know, mechanisms in place to, you know, kind of either remove or adjust major outliers of certain projects. Um, but giving people the ability to own their portfolio completely mm -hmm. um, and have full responsibility for it really helped move our culture of kind of empowerment and customer service, um, which is a key component to how we operate at, in procurement in the state of Michigan. You know, customer service is our real number one priority. Um, and that was something that we were recognized for um, not just our KPIs, but our attrition rate went from, so we were up in the high 30s, we're now at the less than 5%. Um, you know, people are happier. Um, so we recognize for our, our low attrition, our KPIs, our, mm -hmm. our, you know, ability to, again, keep our customers really happy while at the same time, having those hard conversations around, you know, how long things are going to take. And mm -hmm. so those are just some of the things that we're, we're pretty well, proud of there. Well, that's really interesting. So let's, <clears throat> let's stick in that a little bit. Um, so uh, uh, you helped me capture your, your org chart and your approach to organization um, for, a, uh, for a, an alignment and, and reorganization project I helped with uh, for a peer um, earlier in the year. And I would say, you know, out of all of the org charts that I collected, yours was fairly unique in the way that you sort of showed, and, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit here, right? But that you okay. showed kind of the major lines of work and then how each one of your subsections, sort of how you visualized rolling them up. So was, was, that initial organization was that organizational design that I saw was that a component of that culture change that you talked about did you uh, did you drive that at some point in your yeah come in yeah so that? that was probably it's probably the, the not just a component of the culture change but it was a cornerstone of it so you know when you come in, into an organization that is uh, maybe floundering or just kind of going along and and just doing okay but not great you know, the, your first reaction is to, you know, want to change your org chart, your structure, maybe uh, switch some people around. Um, and my approach was sort of like that, but the first thing I did was take stock of essentially who I had on my team. Um, and I don't want to say I interviewed everyone on my staff, but, um, and by the way, I have about 60 uh, folks that work directly for me. Um, they, I sat with all of them for about a half an hour and it was more just a conversation like, hey, how are you? Um, how, are, how have things been? Um, what can you tell me about your work? What do you like about it? What would you like to change about it? Um, some folks were 
more open than others. Uh, you know, this is like trust issues in leadership a lot of times. Um, but it gave me a really good indicator as to how the office not just had been running before, but how people were feeling about their jobs uh, generally. And what I realized was I had an entire section of the office um, who were not doing sourcing work directly, but were doing really, really important work to make sure that sourcing was going well uh, and not having any sort of either direction, uh, recognition, any formal uh, job titles. They had no management structure. Um, it was just kind of this floating back office of 30 people mm. were doing, some were doing one job, some were doing eight jobs um, and dabbling a little bit in each one. Um, so what I was able to do um, is take some experience and other ideas that I had in uh, some private sector jobs that I had prior um, to coming to the state and say, look, you know, first of all, our, our core mission is customer service. We are a customer service organization and that's the end of it. So, you know, we, we do other things. We save money we do all the, you know, your general like procurement 101, this is what you should be doing. But that's never been nearly as important to me because I found that when you have a, an empowered workforce and you have a culture that promotes customer service, all those other things that you want to measure as a procurement professional and you will get fantastic results, like great cost savings. Um, so essentially what I did was build up a um, customer experience side of the house. So I've got the sourcing side, which already kind of existed and I had all my sourcing professionals over there. And then I stood up customer experience side and created a director um, position there that over, oversaw all those people and also um, was able to create, you know, managers and other folks in there and tasked all of these people with specific roles around, you know, um, creating our, creating and tracking our metrics, um, which was very important again, um, contract management, uh, training and certification. You know, we built a whole program with the, with the team that we had built up there. And, you know, among, there's uh, several other things in that bucket too, but, Basically, I was able to do this with all the existing people that I had on my staff. They just hadn't been given any guidance to, to do this kind of work. They were just floating along and, you know, kind of doing a job. So by creating that group and saying, okay, back office, you're no longer back office. You're elevated to the same level as the sourcing team because they're symbiotic, right? You can't you can't have a good sourcing team without a good support team um, and vice versa. So sourcing people can't do their jobs without the customer experience team. Uh, and so building that culture around that half of the office and also letting the sourcing people know that um, these, 
back office slash customer experience team is just as important as they are was a little bit of a culture shift. Mm. Um, but once we got there, it's really been, the results have been fantastic. And, and I would, uh, I would mirror this exact um, setup that I have here mm. or close to it, depending on another organization. If I were to move on somewhere else, it's been so good. So, um, so staying in, staying still in the topic. So, um, you know, using KPIs is something that I hear a lot that people want to do. Um, there's, and of course, everybody does some level of KPIs, right? Um, but to some degree, our ability to do KPIs is affected by how well our our data actually supports it, right? Or whether we're doing some of those marks to be able to track and. I see sometimes these projects um, get a little into an analysis paralysis place of mm -hmm. they want to, but it's hard to begin. So if you were beginning a program, right, and you had you weren't sure of all of your data sources or whatever, I mean, what are what is some advice of the first two or three ways to try to build a beachhead to start working on to be able to to have to start creating that culture, even if you can't get to the full maturity level in the first, in the first jump. Yeah. And we didn't. So we started out with five KPIs um, and that was a really big deal. And what we had to do there. So first bit of advice is start small. You can start with one or two. Um, what you want to do though, is pick KPIs that you can measure accurately. So what you said is right. You want, you don't want to be in this analysis, analysis paralysis where you're trying to figure out 30 KPIs and how are you gonna get those numbers? Um, don't worry about that. Just talk to your staff, um, figure out kind of where they're comfortable in measuring certain things and just draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're gonna measure cost savings. Well, decide what you're gonna measure. Second thing is define it, right? And define it very clearly, but also very simply. Um, don't we had, there was a cost savings definition that I can't even remember anymore. Um, that was so complicated um, that no one really understood it. It was this all kinds of, you know, formula and all this stupid stuff. It didn't make any sense to anyone. So no one measured it. So we redefined cost savings. And we also went a little bit further and said, are we going to measure and report on hard savings or soft savings, right? Again, keeping it simple, all procurement 101 stuff. And we said, look, we're going to measure both hard and soft savings, but we're only going to report out on hard savings because at the end of the day, the hard savings outside of your office of a procurement office, nobody understands well or cares about soft savings, especially when you're in the government and you're talking to legislators. Um, you can't explain to them in any kind of simple term what a soft saving is. So we just measure report out in all our reports, um, hard savings only. So, that's so kind was of your, was your hard saving? So was cost avoidance part of hard savings or was that part of soft, soft savings? Soft savings. So, so how do you affect then hard savings from a procurement organization? Because the budget is in the agency, right? So like if you save 15% on pencils and you enable the agency to buy a fifth pencil when they only had budget for four, mm -hmm. So where does your hard savings, what, you, give us a definition from your perspective of what hard savings is. Well, so what we would say um, in that case, we, 
if we put that contract in place for that agency, mm -hmm. that's our savings. Um, and we do most of the contracts statewide. So the agencies have uh, about a half a million dollars um, of authority where they can go and contract out on their own. And most of them do not measure hmm. savings. Um, so, you know, we'll measure them on our contracts on, on what we say are DTMB, you know, uh, technology management and budget, which is where I, my department sits uh, at the state. So, you know, we would measure that for our contracts only. And the numbers are still, you know, they're very, very good. But, you know, one of the things we always say too is the numbers are the numbers. And it sounds really simple to say that, and it is simple to say that, but there's an understanding that goes with that. Um, if you set a savings target, which by the way, this is the other piece of shifting gears just slightly really quick for a second. When you're talking about KPIs, you do wanna set goals and you wanna set targets, but they need to be realistic. Mm -hmm. And what we did when we first set up our KPIs was look at our historical data and see where we landed for the last like two to three years on some of this stuff. So we would apply our, our say our cost savings methodology or our um, uh, length of time for an RFP, which was also one of the first KPIs. How long did that RFP take on average the last couple of years? And then let's apply our model to that and look at and then we set a goal. Okay, we're going to say 128 days, business days, would be how long an RFP takes. And what we want to do is hit that number 70% of the time. So that's our KPI for that. Cost savings. How much did we save? Well, I know the formula was weird. If you remember, you know, earlier I said their formula was completely jacked up, didn't really make a lot of sense. So we just took a subset of contracts, extrapolated that number, applied our very simple methodology of you know, what a cost savings is essentially, you know, you're, you're saving money over pre previously contracted price, or, you know, when you're looking at a new contract for the bids coming in, um, you know, what the budget is to actual, that's a very simple definition. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how we measure our hard savings. And so we would kind of extrapolate that number and our first cost savings target, I think was like $8 million. Um, and that was two and a half years ago, maybe you know, closer to three years now. Because um, it took about six to eight months to kind of set a lot of this stuff up. And so now this past year, we saved $21 million. So, you know, what's our, what's our goal going to be for next year? Probably not $20 million, maybe 15, maybe 18. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't necessarily base our savings numbers and our savings targets on prior years spend, we look at kind of what's coming down the pipeline and also realistic numbers. Um, well, and what a year, right? <clears throat> like who knows right. if historical spend is gonna be, is gonna be meaningful right now. So, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on COVID in a second. Um, sure. But you, you actually hit on some, where I was gonna go next uh, when you were describing that, so that one of your early KPIs was the time to do an RFP. Um, yeah. So, before the holidays, I started a content arc around procurement agility, right? And I mean, one of the common complaints that you hear from vendor community is that the RFPs are 
large and ponderous and hard to respond to and et cetera. And I'm certainly not going to, um, to bury the RFP because there are definitely times where it is exactly the right tool and, it, and, and despite uh, protests to the alternative, it's an effective tool, but it's not the only tool, right? There are different mm -hmm. tools in the toolkit. There are different ways to go to market. There are different ways to think about um, vendor pools with small form SOWs. There are ways to think about challenge bids or, or problem statement style bids. There's lots of things that people are playing with. So, you know, how do you try, when, when I say procurement agility to you, does that have any particular, does that spark any particular um, uh, thing that you're trying to do or work on? Or how do you drive that, that understanding that the amount of time it takes to do an RFP um, mm -hmm. is also about like using the right tool when we're actually going to market? So that's a great question. And yeah, so when we think about agility, um, for me, again, it goes back to customer experience or customer service and like, who are our customers, right? Our customers are our agencies. Um, our customers are the citizens of the state. So me and everyone else that lives here, 10 million people. Uh, but the customers are also our suppliers and, uh -huh. um, I look, to, I look very much in our culture to make sure that we are treating our suppliers with um, respect and as partners where possible, where it makes sense. You know, we do have some long-term partners. And this is where I run up against um, some, uh, that's what I'm looking for. I wouldn't say opposition, but I run, I, I get raised eyebrows and I get some um, grinding against those words on the legislative side. like. You should only be buying the cheapest items. No, our suppliers are not our friends. No, we should put to, out to bid everything all the time. Um, and I don't, I don't agree with any of those statements. Um, and I think there's a, some procurement folks that also don't agree with that. But I think your more advanced organizations realize that you're going to have long-term partnerships um, with some vendors. So again, circle back, customer experience. Um, you know, we are trying really hard to make sure that our vendors have a pretty easy time responding to our bids. And some of them are really long um, and some of them need to be. But something that we've started to do is move, more to, move to a more solutions-based um, bid, right? So a lot of times, especially again in government, much less so in the private sector, your bids are super prescriptive, right? They have requirements that are 10, 15, 20 pages long. Um, we're now, especially in, in the IT space, we're moving to a more, what I would say is agile, um, you know, requirements or I'm sorry, solutions-based RFP uh, responses. So what we say is here's a problem, here's some loose requirements, you know, these are kind of go, no go requirements, um, meet these, base ones, but then give us your creative solution as to how you would help the state achieve its goal, whatever that goal is in that bid. So that's one thing we're doing on the RFP side. So when we do have to do RFPs, we're trying to at least move to an, an easier kind of format and a more collaborative format. Also, um, you know, under, under my organization, one of the tasks I gave to, I would say, you know, one of the more 
uh, creative people on my team, who was also an attorney, is to look at our procurement law. And, and you know, what exactly can we do or can't we do within the law? Um, and essentially the law states that we have to publicly post bidding opportunities. It doesn't say how we have to do that. We just happen to have an RFP and a couple of other uh, bidding kind of Insurance. tools, mechanisms, right? We came up with a few more. Um, and you know, one of the complaints I had from IT was that they were not able to do any proofs of concept you know, cause we had to have everything out on the street for a bid they couldn't just try something out. Mm -hmm. um, so we created a bid um, package called a, a CPC or a competitive proof of concept. Mm -hmm. Especially an RFP that has a proof of concept built into the, into the back end of it. Mm -hmm. So essentially what we do is put out this CPC, say we wanna do this thing, answer these questions, qualify yourself we're going to have one or two or five of you run a proof of concept for a determined period of time that's written out in the bid. And at the end of it, at the award area section, at the end of the proof of concept is when we award. So essentially, you know, it's still following the letter of the law, but allows IT to do proofs of concept. Um, and there is a couple other, you know, uh, bid types as well that we've created around, um, you know, making sure that we're acting within the letter of the law, but still being agile and creative enough to, you know, think a little bit, um, I hate using that term outside the box, but it kind of is. It's like, we're thinking inside the law, but very creatively in that. Um, so we can make all of our customers as happy as possible. Well, that's excellent. Um, <clears throat> you know, when people get uncomfortable about doing things that are, you know, maybe have create something that hasn't been before, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I tend to fall on the ground that if, if you're communicating to all of the vendors, what the rules of the game are and how they play, and it's not, it's not on its face illegal, then mm -hmm. it's something that you can that you can try, right? Just because yeah. it's different doesn't mean that it's not okay. And I've seen in the past, I've seen you know on some of the data center bids that I've seen, they have a they have a second phase in the bid where they you know they allow the two most uh, winning vendors to come inside for a period of time to validate their assumptions, and they have a period that is an extended sort of uh, interaction point for the purpose of then making the decision. So what you described kind of reminded me of what I've seen for that, but that's fantastic that you've created that kind of structure. Um, do you, not to put you on the spot, do you have an example of when you've done one of those or, or tried to make use of that kind of an instrument? Uh, competitive proof of concept? Right. Um, yeah, actually there's a, um, it was recently for a cloud-based, uh, I think it was Google Cloud and they were looking at Google and Microsoft and Amazon um, mm -hmm. services. So they basically wanted to try out all three for a cloud-based solution um, to see who could handle it the best. And they landed on one um, for the majority of the work and actually gave some of the work to another one, just a smaller piece of it. But it allowed them to see kind of real world how their um, cloud, uh, 
um, solutions would, you know, work in our with our environment. What we had to had to do. So okay. that's probably the most recent one in the last like few months. Well, I, I, I think it's a rule that if I have an interview with a procurement officer, I have to ask about COVID stuff, right? Because that's where we're all at, right? So what, what sure. role does, uh, does, does Michigan have with, um, with the ongoing COVID and, and how have you kind of managed to, to absorb this new responsibility along with all the, the other normal responsibilities that you had coming into this period? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, not to beat the issue to death, but obviously we had a, a major shortage of PPE uh, of all types uh, for quite some time. Um, and it was a struggle for us and, and a lot of other states and a lot of other countries to get what they needed. Um, you know, we were able to come through that pretty well. Um, the, you know, first thing we did, again, going back to your kind of theme of being agile, we took a subset of our sourcing staff um, and said, look, your, your job is now sourcing PPE. And we pushed their projects to, um, you know, the rest of the sourcing staff that was still doing the day-to-day -day operation of the, of the department. You know, we still had to do strategic sourcing um, and procurement. So we had this, uh, what we call the triage team and our triage team worked you know, unbelievable hours um, for weeks and weeks and weeks to try and get uh, our PPE. So we created some kind of micro processes and, um, you know, within that team in terms of, you know, how do we expedite purchase orders? How do we expedite wire transfers? And we fixed all that kind of within the first week. And so after that first week of, you know, figuring out what the mechanics were of getting these vendors paid, because uh, as everybody knows who's listening to this, um, you know, that was a, a big issue as well as getting vendors paid, you know, net zero wire transfer, 80%, 100% upfront payment, millions of dollars. Um, having all those approvals in place and then having the ability to do that within 15 or 20 minutes um, of getting a, uh, a quote, you know, was, it was huge for us. Um, so having a small subset of people heavily concentrated on, on the work, um, you know, if you spread it out too much, then you're, it's, you're not going to get it done. Um, and then the ability to kind of push that, those purchases really quickly through the system. Um, and on the flip side, I'm not going to linger on it too much, but also to recall some of those purchases where fraud may have been mm -hmm. occurring. Um, even a suspected fraud, we were able to really quickly recall wires and other monies. Um, and therefore, you know, I think we lost a total of $45,000 out, out of $260 million that we spent on PPE. Mm. Um, so that was, we're really proud of that. So, um, yeah, you know, and then going forward, so on the PPE front, you know, we're in good shape right now. We have more than I think we could use in, in the next year or more. Um, I think we're positioned pretty well for, you know, the continuing, uh, you know, outbreak. And on the, on the vaccine side, we don't have a huge role in it. Um, we are doing some support work in terms of buying some deep freezes and um, for storage, long-term storage. 
and also, you know, dry ice for transport um, and hiring, you know, some transport companies that can move this. Um, but mm -hmm. federal level, really, uh, that responsibility has fallen kind of to the National Guard. Um, mm -hmm. We're kind of letting them take the lead, um, and we're happy to do that uh, on distributing the vaccine. It's not something really the state, um, I think, wanted to kind of lead. Uh, right. So, so, um, um, so let me close out by bringing it back to your team. So I had, uh, I wrote an article last, or I, I extended an article last week where um, uh, a writer um, uh, out of the uh, uh, writing in the Harvard Business Review had talked about how kind of up through the late summer, we were still all responding with a certain amount of adrenaline. And then at some point in the fall and in the go forward, the adrenaline falls off and you have to maintain that psychological stamina of your team and find ways to keep them energized because um, while the light is at the end of the tunnel, we don't know how long the tunnel is. So how do you think about keeping your team kind of energized into, into the next year? And, you know, since you're the, the, we're doing this interview on, on uh, the first day after the new year, as we start to really kind of step into 2021, you know, what are, your, what are some of the things you want to try to emphasize in, in this work year? So I think that, you know, going through this pandemic was a very um, uh, personal thing for a lot of people. Um, so not only were people struggling with work, they're struggling with uh, loved ones, they're struggling with uh, children at home, spouses at home, um, learning to work uh, remotely, and then you add on this pressure um, of having to do the job that we had to do. Uh, the first thing I would say is, you know, I, I jumped in with my team as much as I could um, and said, look, you know, what, what is my role gonna be in this? Uh, I'm not just gonna be kind of the figurehead or the, the person planning or pulling strings. So, you know, my specific role during this um, was, handling the whole wire transfer piece. So my staff would um, hand off purchases over to me after a certain point, and then I would run it to the very end and then follow up and make sure that uh, those things were being delivered, et cetera. Um, so jumping in and supporting your staff is huge. Being there for them, um, I think on a, on a personal level and a professional level is very important. Um, I have a a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for everyone on my team. I feel like I've built an amazing team and I've done that, you know, very personally. I interview everybody that comes in, into our doors, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one before they get the opportunity to work in my department. Um, and that making sure that people are okay um, and, and, they're comfortable telling you that they're not okay. There were several occasions where I would send an email to someone. I'm like, hey, can you handle this? And they'd reply and say, no, I can't handle it. I've got too much going on. And my response was, okay, then I'll handle it or I'll get someone else to do it. Um, telling them that, you know, they're going to be okay and then it's going to end. Um, giving them comp time, um, you know, time off say, hey, if you've got the, the time to take today, just take it off and don't, you don't need to log that time as a, if 
PTO day in the HR system. Just you've earned this comp time, just go and do spend time with your family. Um, and not questioning that, not being a clock puncher. All those things go a very, very long way with folks. Um, and so that's that's how I handled it. And, and folks, you know, we had a lot of strained moments and, and some tears and, and some yelling and was, uh, you know, not yelling at each other, but just frustration of, you know, our vendors and I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that this, you know, I had masks and now I don't, that type, that type of thing. Um, and and uh, yeah, so I guess hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. and then how do you, <clears throat> how do you um, look into 2021? Are your, do your priorities uh, stay the same? Um, is there, is there any particular difference in stuff that you're going to be working or trying to do in 2021 compared to, to now, or is it too early to, to know that? No, it's not too early. I mean, we start looking at goals. Um, you know, we look at our goals from 2020, um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, before the holiday and say, look, you know, what did we, what got pushed aside, um, mm -hmm because of COVID and what are we going to pull forward then into 2021? So there was, you know, probably eight out of 25 goals that we probably are going to pull forward in 21 that just simply didn't get done. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, otherwise I'd say this year we're going to be more or less business as usual again. And um, with the exception of the fact that, and I, I think this is one good thing that has come out of COVID and I, um, hopefully other people will agree with me is the importance of a work-life balance where, you know, having to be in the office or sitting like a, you know, butt in seat mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that's automatic productivity. Um, we're going to be in the office probably two days a week in person instead of five. Uh, we're going to shrink our office space and save, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year on, on office space and supplies and whatnot. People like being at home uh, a lot. They like being in the office too, uh, but people are saving money on gas. Um, they're saving money on childcare. Um, they've at this point figured out all those speed bumps, you know, smooth them, smooth them over that, that kind of started out early in the process of working at home. Um, so we've got a lot of positive coming out of this. So I think that our, our normalcy is going to be kind of exciting going into 2021 um, when we do return to the office. But in terms of our workload um, and the things that we're going to be looking at, it's going to be a lot of what we started out as in 2020, you know, watching our KPI, looking at savings, making sure we get the best people um, on our staff where we have open positions, um, all those types of things. All right. And you know, I heard on one of the, one of the, I, I attended several virtual conferences this year. And one of those speakers was talking about how, you know, our old language about work from the office or work from home actually then kind of morphs into work from anywhere, right? That, that it's a blend of, of the two. And, and there is that, that transition in being able to do it. But I think that that concept of work from anywhere and then how does that survive into 2020 as thing or 2021 as things uh you know even out is going to be an interesting interesting change for a lot of procurement shops absolutely absolutely 
Well, good. Hey, well, Jim, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. And, uh, uh, you know, enjoyed the uh, conversation. Absolutely. Me too, Dustin. You take care, man. Okay. Thanks so much. Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent.